Father, we pray that our eyes might be fixed in the right place, that you'll help us to see things clearly, see the realities, the spiritual realities, as well as the uh, physical ones, uh, and help us to have the right perspective, your perspective in our lives. Amen. Well, in 2012, London hosted the Summer Olympics. Uh, anyone here an Olympics kind of junkie and you never thought you'd like uh, tiddlywinks and, you know, table tennis and babington, but there you are at three in the morning. God, oh, it's on. It's the Olympics. I've got to watch it. Yeah. Uh, three years before uh, it began, the BBC in England ran a one-hour documentary on Britain's hopefuls, the up-and-coming athletes who were kind of you know, might be ready to win something uh, in a few years' time. Uh, one of them was a young but hopeful rower named Catherine Granger. And uh, they showed her in some of her preparations uh, for the Games to whether she'd make the team or not. There she was at 5am on a winter's morning in the middle of the snow and ice, scraping ice off her windshield so that she could head down to the river to practice midwinter for a summer sport. And uh, a question she was asked by the interviewer as she sat at the steering wheel shivering after she got in, she just cleared enough to see, is what on earth would make you want to do this? Why? Her answer, two words, the podium. The podium. That's what made her do it. The prospect of standing up there receiving the victor's crown. Now, Catherine Granger went on to be six times world champion, four-time Olympic medalist, and did, in fact, win the gold medal at the London Olympics in the, uh, the pairs rowing. And now she is Britain's most successful Olympian ever. The podium. That's where she was looking. She had that perspective and it shaped every moment of her life. And I want us to ask a very simple question of ourselves this morning. Where are we looking? Where are we looking? Because where we're looking, our perspective, according to the Apostle Paul, impacts how we're living. Or let me put it a different way. Proper Christian perspective results in pursuing authentic, dedicated, loving, joyful Christian Service. We're talking today about ministry, by which I don't mean being the paid minister, but putting ourselves out for the gospel and for other people, right, as servants. Now, the perspective that Paul wants us to have is the perspective that he himself has and that we got a glimpse of last week in chapter 4. So chapter 4 and verse 14, he says this, "...knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring you into his presence." That's the perspective for Paul, Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead in the past guarantees our physical resurrection in the future because Jesus died as a sacrifice in our place for our sins so he has been raised as Lord of and King of eternity and in conquering death, Jesus has not just done it for himself but he has opened the way for humanity to rise again. Jesus is the first of many. And he promises to return and raise every man and woman to judgment. But because Jesus has paid for sin, we who trust and follow him will face a physical future in his new creation, enjoying everything that he's won for us. We know how the judgment's going to go for us, right? Because we have forgiveness. 
Right? It's the finishing line. It's the podium. It's the future perspective that, that governs all of Paul's life. And so like Catherine Granger looking ahead to the podium, it causes him not to get up at five o'clock in the morning and scrape, you know, scrape the window and train on icy rivers, uh, but it causes him to speak the gospel, whatever the present cost, in spite of extraordinary opposition and hostility. Everything he does is for the service of this glorious treasure that we looked at last week that he has within, by which God brings life to other people. And today, Paul's going to show us how, how that perspective impacts on, on three particular things related to uh, Christian ministry or service. What's it going to change? Well, fixing our eyes on the podium that Jesus has won for us will give us, one, the get-up-and-go for Christian ministry. Two, it'll give us the guts to do it. And three, it'll give us the goal of Christian ministry. The get-up-and-go, the guts and the goal. Now, uh, just so you're not disheartened later on, uh, we'll spend a lot longer on the first one and uh, it gets shorter and shorter as they go along. There you go. So if you're like going, whoa, how are we going in here? Anyway, let's start with the get-up-and-go. Paul says that the future hope of being raised with Jesus in glory ought to be like Gatorade or like Red Bull to our souls, you know, reviving us, restoring us. Now, you see that in verse 16 of chapter 4. Have a look there. See it. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. When you know what's coming, it changes how we feel and how we think about now and it gives us heart. It gives us renewal in the face of challenge and difficulty and opposition. It's, it's like that kind of pick-me-up moment, that energy kind of buzz when you're driving back from Canberra you know, along the Hume Highway kind of and it's long and it's tedious and we're never going to get there to Sydney uh, until you see Norellan Road. All right, and all of a sudden you think, yes, not long now, it's awesome, and, and you're, you're re- you, you can do it for the next 15 minutes, or 10 if it's James. Anyway, so, uh, so <laughs> sorry, 20, <laughs> um, if it's Kate. Uh, so <laughs> Notice the language he's using there. He talks about internal and external. He says, outwardly, we're wasting away. That, that's the external. But he says, inwardly, we're being renewed. That's the internal. Or at the end of eight, verse 18, Paul uses the language of visible, what he can see in front of him, and invisible. The, the things that are seen with his eyes are, he says, temporary. They're transient. They're like Catherine Granger's breath in the cold winter's morning as she goes out for rowing practice. It may be like your breath as you go and join her there. Um, it, it vanishes just as it breathes out. But the things that are unseen, he says, that they are eternal. They last. They are the things that endure. And so Paul's point is that our heart's response to the things that we go through now in the present will be utterly dependent on where we are looking if we just take it from the point of view of the external and the immediately visible, Paul increasingly would see himself as one of those houses that the real estate agent describes as in need of some repair or 
a renovator's dream, right? <laughs> you get to the age of about 35, I don't know, around there, and you start to become more and more familiar with this sense of steady and increasingly rapid dilapidation. <laughs> David, he's gone, he's running. <laughs> he better run. Anyway, so <laughs> David regularly refers to me as old man. Old man Joe, there you go. Not because we're related in any way, but because of my back problems and the graying beard and the slow shuffle that I think passes as a jog. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I, I went jogging with Andrew. He ended up walking while I was running. <laughs> um, I was complaining to David just the other day when we were away that, that my eyesight is not as sharp as it used to be. In fact, uh, one eye is much blurrier than the other at distance. But uh, um, I must tell you, though, when, when he asked me what I was struggling to make out in the distance, uh, I said, oh, it's, it's the words on the side of the boat, uh, you know, a couple of hundred metres away. I could see it with my left. I can just read a bit right. Nah. Uh, and he said, there's writing there? <laughs> He's got old man eyes, even if I've got an old man body. But anyway... <laughs> But it's lucky, though, you don't need good eyesight to have a right perspective of the future glory that God has for us. But you do need to have your resurrection glasses on, right? When you've got those on, we might still notice the visible deterioration, but it's matched by an internal, invisible, spiritual renovation inside. And notice that last bit of verse 16. He says this renewal happens day by day, every day. And I take it that Paul puts on his resurrection glasses every single day. It's a 24-7, 365-day affair. He gets up in the morning, he looks at himself in the mirror, and while things might look a little worse than they were yesterday, he looks back at the glorious resurrection of Jesus in the past, which is a fact on the table of history, And it drives him, therefore, to look forward to the even more glorious future that God has in store for those who are in Jesus. And it becomes, like I said, Gatorade for the soul. I heard John Piper a few years ago um, uh, speaking somewhere, and I don't think he'd read it in one of his books, but uh, he said, uh, I never wake up Christian. Right? This is a world-famous pastor. He's a good guy, right? Stuff. But he says, I have to look, look at myself and say, John... Jesus is amazing. Trust him, right? Don't trust yourself. I don't wake up every day, Christian, but I'm determined as I look ahead to be one. He gets Gatorade for the soul. And and Paul says it enables you to get up every day and, and say, yes, I will keep going. Yes, it is worth it. Yes, I will go on. But not just go on in life, getting up and making the most of the day despite the deterioration of our bodies, That may be true, but it's not really what he's talking about. He's talking about how that glorious day ahead gives us the get up and go for serving Jesus, for ministry. It's Gatorade for for being a public Christian. It's Gatorade for uh, serving God. It's the Red Bull for, for speaking about our faith and our hope. It's the Gatorade we need for running the race. You know, it's the it's um, you know the V for putting ourselves out for the sake of others that they might come to Christ and grow as His disciples. Or you know, it's the thing we need to help us put ourselves out for each other. And and it's such a powerful stimulant, such a powerful restorative that 
that it will enable us to face any and every setback and difficulty that we face in our ministry and service. Remember last week Paul described himself as what? Anyone remember? A clay pot, broken, chipped. It's a broken pot. It's got a glorious treasure within of the gospel, but it's a broken clay pot. And he shared his experience of serving Jesus and how it feels even like death sometimes. He says, we are afflicted, we are hard-pressed, we're perplexed, we're at a loss, we're persecuted, we're opposed, we're knocked down. How does Christian ministry feel, at least sometimes? Sometimes it feels like the wall's pushing in from all sides. Blocked. Crushed. Whether it's in big ways, like Paul, who's beaten and whipped and bashed and arrested, or whether it's in small ways... Because he, you know, we've tried to be helpful and serve in some way, but only ever received criticism as a result. And, and sometimes even criticism from the Christians we're serving. You know, like the, the person who, uh, for example, provides morning tea for church. He's only ever told things like, well, you should have made more than that. Right? Or, why didn't you put the milk in a jug? Or, you should have done this. Why didn't you set it out a certain way? Those things happen, right? They even happen in our church. Rather than being told by everyone, good on you. Thanks very much. All right? It's great you're looking after us all. That's demoralizing, isn't it? You know, that's just going to make you want to give up. And yet it happens all the time. Sad to say, even sometimes in our own church. I think as Christians, just as an aside, we've got to be very careful in the way we speak to our brothers and sisters for their encouragement and, and not just let fly because it's not the way we like it. Um, I mean, thank God for the many people who volunteer and who care for us and care for each other and, and thank them too. I mean, we've got enough mud slung at us from the world. We don't need to be crushing each other as well. How does it feel to be in Christian ministry and to serve Jesus? Well, it can be hard. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. Sometimes I feel completely at a loss as I look at my calendar and think, how on earth are we going to get all that done? <laughs> right? Or you look around the suburb as you walk down the street or go to MacArthur Square and you're like, how on earth are we going to reach all these people? Not just the numbers, but the different languages, the barriers, the, the cultural differences, the, you know, the broken homes and, you know, the kids fighting and the mums fighting and like, just you're like, how on earth are we going to do this? Right? It's overwhelming at times. How does it feel in Christian ministry? Oh, I can feel like the whole world's against me in the workplace. I, I barely dare open my mouth or own up to following Jesus. How does a feeling Christian ministry and service? Frequent setbacks. You know, sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's two steps forward, three steps back. And you're like, oh man, how are we going to do this? Where is the energizing force to keep us going, to keep me going? Where's the power? Where's the fuel? I look to the podium, says Paul. I consider the future. With my resurrection glasses on, it transforms the way I think about everything, the way I feel about everything. Daily renewal. 
Why is it such a boost? Why does it give such inner renewal? Well, because the future perspective of our resurrection shows us that our efforts and our service for Christ is actually achieving something incredible, whether we can see it now or not. Have a look at verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. You think about it. Uh, Paul has been arrested, whipped, beaten, shipwrecked, bashed, left for dead in the gutter. And he can say all of those things are light and momentary troubles. Not that they don't mean anything, but in comparison, because no matter what the hardship or how long we have to face it, what's what's 60, 70, 80 years compared to 6,000, 7,000, 8,000, indeed compared to eternity? Remember how the gap between the end of the school year and Christmas seemed like so long, like when is it coming? It seemed like it went on forever, it's unbearable. Now it's just gone as quick as a flash, right? Just perspective, perspective. Your kids need some perspective, don't they? But it's not just the quantity of time, there's a lot of eternity and a little bit of now, it's the quality What's the future, he says, awaits God's people? He calls it an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. It's something beyond comparison. In fact, in the original language, he just uses the word hyperbole twice. An eternal weight of glory, hyperbole, hyperbole. Whatever that is, right? You just can't imagine it. You know what a hyperbole is? Yeah? Uh, it's, it's pushing something to the extreme, right? It's like when I say to my kids, how many millions and billions of times have I told you not to exaggerate? <laughs> or like when I say to Alison, your skin is softer than the purest silk. <laughs> or when she says to me, you're uglier than a bag of hammers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joe, you're like the north end of a southbound camel. <laughs> they'll, they'll click in in a minute. <laughs> she doesn't say that. <laughs> One commentator puts it like this. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory excessively to excess. That's the, that's the sense. It's so wonderful. He's so good what's coming. So glorious. There are no real words to describe it. And so even as we feel weak and battered, even as we look and feel a lot like, you know, chipped old clay pots, even as we hold out the gospel, even as we're flagging as we run the race, even so when you look to the future resurrection and see what awaits us as we round the corner, and enter the stadium and see the finishing line with the crowd there cheering us on and, and glory of all glories, the Lord Jesus himself waiting with the garland to put around our neck. And, and, and we see others just around who have heard the gospel from us or we've contributed in some way to, as to their hearing the gospel and they've come to Jesus and it's marvellous. This is his eternal weight of glory excessively to excess. And what's more, he says, it's sure, it's certain. 
It's not a maybe. It's not something uncertain or insecure like it might have been for Catherine Granger. Just a, a one in a million shot that she might win, right? Anything could have happened in training. You know, there might have been someone better than her. She might not even make the team. She happened to. But this one's guaranteed. Guaranteed because Jesus has paid and because he has risen bodily from the dead and he will come again. We've got to have this future perspective or we'll give up on the Christian life. But with it, when we're knocked down for our witness or our service of Jesus, we'll pick ourselves up off the ground, we'll dust ourselves off, and we won't just kind of grin and bear it, plodding along in glum, grim, disgruntled, you know, way. Paul is not saying, he's not like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Thanks for finding my tail. Most likely again lose it anyway. (laughs) He's not like that. He's not like Marvin the android from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Life. Don't talk to me about life. Don't try and engage my enthusiasm because I don't have one. (laughs) Pardon me for breathing, which I never do anyway, so I don't know why I bother to say it. (laughs) Paul's not like that. Rather, as he considers the future, it produces within him daily renewal. It produces get up and go. He's filled with joy and vigour, even in the sadness of the challenges and the difficulties. And he wants us to know that renewal too. As we set our eyes on the podium, it refreshes, it revives for Christian service. It's the get up and go we need. But it does more than that. Because it also gives him the guts for Christian ministry. It gives him the courage and the determination to keep doing it. It gives him the guts to speak up. It gives him the guts to say the hard things. It gives him the guts to take on the false teachers. It gives him the guts to, to even say to his Christian brothers and sisters who he loves with his whole heart, you are wrong and you need to change and this is not good enough. It's, it gives him the guts to get up and go to the next town and the next city and the next country with the gospel. And that's because he knows, you know, and we know, when we, if you consider the absolute glory that awaits, if you really get that, you realise there is absolutely nothing to lose now. And the more you realise you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain, the gutsier you'll be. You'll be fearless. Like Queensland losing in an origin match and last time we've got nothing to lose. Let's just fling it around. Yeah, kind of, and it's exciting. Yeah, kind of. Uh, and sometimes they even win, but we've got absolutely nothing to lose. In fact, it's already guaranteed. We've got nothing. And with the resurrection ahead, there's certainly nothing to lose. Chapter 5 and verse 1. We know that if we live in the earthly tent, uh, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Now, he uses a picture of a tent that may be your favourite thing in the world. It may be your least favourite thing in the world. Uh, anyone ever been camping? All right. 
I'm not talking about glamping, right? No, <laughs> real camping, you know, Bill Grill, Bear Grill style, you know, not heading off to a French resort kind of caravan park, you know, with running water and a built-in spa and soft mattress and, you know, uh, shells in your tent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Rather, he just whacks up a tarp out there in the open and, you know, braves it, you know. Imagine being Bear Grylls' wife or, you know, future wife and anticipating what the honeymoon's going to be like. <laughs> and you can imagine her at the end of the week groaning, being burdened. Let's get rid of this makeshift dwelling, longing for it to be swallowed up by something substantial. Maybe you enjoy that kind of camping, maybe you'd hate it. But either way... We all know it's good to come home to the house, to something solid, to something substantial, to a warm bed, to something real. And I suspect Paul's got in mind the experience of Israel in the wilderness where God's tabernacle was a tent and God's people lived in tents. And contrast that when they come to the promised land where God dwelt, so to speak, in the temple in a real building and they lived in houses. But he's saying that the body we are in is frail and weak And frail and weak as it is, it's going to be something glorious in the future. Verse 4, For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. At the resurrection of the dead, the, the resurrection to come, not Jesus' resurrection, that's already happened, the one that's coming, your physical body is going to be raised. It's... Not like our physical body is going to be shed like a snake shedding its skin, never to be seen again. And it will you know, continue on as kind of disembodied spirits with little harps or something like that. But at the resurrection, when Jesus comes again, your physical body is going to be reconstituted, brought back together, even if you've been cremated. The Lord who created the heavens and the earth will recreate you physically, gloriously different. No more aches and pains, no more bad back. No more damage given a glorious physical body swallowed up by life. That is immensely encouraging for those of us who trust the Lord Jesus. And may I say to you, if you don't currently trust the Lord Jesus, I really pity you uh, if you don't have this confidence. What do you think is going to happen to you when you die? What future have you got? Your worldview, does it take into account your death and the judgment that happens afterwards that awaits you? But us Christians, it it should be tremendously encouraging. And because it's so encouraging, it shouldn't just bring joy to your heart. It should put steel in your backbone. I have nothing to lose. Why should I fear embarrassment for owning the fact that I love and follow Jesus when I've got that coming? Why should I worry what people might think of me or what they might do to me? Even if the law were to change and we were told that we could not speak, you know, about Jesus or proselytize or whatever word they want to use, what on earth can they really do to us? Fine us? Arrest us? So what? Remember Peter and John arrested in Acts chapter 4, standing on trial. And they say to the people who've arrested them for being public Christians and having the gospel on their lips, who could execute them, 
mind you, which they are going to do in a year or so's time afterwards with the Apostle James. He has his head uh, taken off. So the same crowd judging, and they say fearlessly, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven or on earth by which, uh, given to man by which we must be saved. The authorities look around at each other and they say, what are we going to do with these men? How can you stop them? How do we, we want to stop this thing from spreading? And so they warn them and they command them not to speak to anyone ever again about Jesus. Verse 19, but Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You might be our judges here on earth, but as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's guts. That's steel. That's courageous, fearless, determined. The same guts that Paul's talking about. And he has exercised the courage to even face death. You see it in verse 1 again? If the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, that is not an abstract possibility. That is a real possibility. Even if I got killed for doing what I'm doing, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. With our resurrection glasses on, the future perspective gives us the get up and go for Christian ministry. It gives us the guts for Christian ministry. But finally, it gives us one more thing. It gives us the goal. What is it we're doing when we're serving? What's the point of what we're doing? Well, what's the goal? What are we trying to do? If that's our hope, that's our true home, that's our future, one by Jesus, what are we aiming to do? Please God. It's as simple as that. Please God. You see it in that last paragraph that we're looking at today, verse 6 to 10 of chapter 5. He says, Therefore, we're always confident and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Actually, it's, it's holding us back. <laughs> we live by faith and not by sight. We're confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him. Whether we're at home in the body, whether we're away from it, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what's due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now I'm not going to go into any detail on judgment today because David will come back to that next week. But just in case you're wondering if there's anything for Christians to fear in the judgment, the answer is no. No, because our forgiveness is in Christ. All right? Whatever's happened in the past, wiped out if we trust Jesus. Whatever we might stumble in the future, well... If our confidence is in him, clean. But that forgiveness results in joyful service of God. We aim to please God. Not because we fear we're going to not make the cut, but joy because Jesus has made the cut for us and we long to be with him and we long to share his life and we start to value what he values and love what he, because we love him. We can't wait to be with him and so we live for him now. Our aim is to please him. When you understand the eternal weight of glory that is yours, when you realise you've been saved from a terrifying judgment, which Daniel spoke about, uh, which would leave you in ruin and misery for eternity, when you reflect on the cross and the resurrection, which have opened up a wonderful and certain and sure hope for you, you begin to realise that there's actually no one more wonderful than God. There's no one worth serving more than God, not even yourself. Um, there's no one worth dying for more than God. 
with your eyes on the prize, you know there is nothing better to do with your life than to please God. How do you please him? Well, by understanding what he's on about. By understanding what he's doing and by joining in. What is God in the business of? He's in the business of saving people for that eternity with him through the gospel. That's what God's doing. And he's doing it through us as we, his people, put ourselves out, as we work together, as we encourage each other, and particularly as we speak his message facing any difficulty and set back with daily renewal and with guts and determination. Is your life orientated in the pursuit of pleasing God? With the resurrection in mind, the podium, you have renewed vigour, you have still in your backbone and you'll throw yourself into pleasing him. However, it happens to be at this moment that I can do that. Remember Catherine Granger, 5am, shivering, scraping the ice off the windscreen, all to go rowing on an icy river. Why? The podium. Where are your eyes fixed? Are they on the prize? Let's pray. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so we pray, Father in heaven, for you to work powerfully in us by your Holy Spirit, this supernatural, miraculous work of yours, that you would cause us to believe truly the resurrection that is ahead, to look at things unseen and eternal, to anticipate the finishing line and the eternal weight of glory that you have prepared for us, to long for it, and so to keep going in Christian service. Help us to please you in everything, in every way, every moment, thinking how can we honour you, how can we bring glory to you, how can we bring the gospel to bear in our actions and our thinking. Mould us, shape us towards this future. We ask in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.